What's up, guys? JD here, and on today's show, I am talking with Clive Kinross, CEO and co-founder of Propel Holdings. This is such an awesome conversation, and Clive is a purebred entrepreneur, my kind of guy. He has taken a beating over the years, but he always comes out on top. You guys are going to hear all about it. And Propel Holdings is a super interesting company. They do short-term lending to people who generally can't get loans from banks because maybe they don't have credit history or because they're new immigrants to a country. It's a really shady industry in general, but what Propel is doing is really cool because, among other things, they're helping people build their credit. So ultimately, they don't need to be clients of Propel, but they can go to the big banks and do well for themselves. So super interesting company, super interesting guy. That's coming up in just a sec. Before I get to it, if you love the content I'm putting out, make sure to get on my email list at johndavids.com. I got my book coming out in 2024 my first book. A lot of love coming to you guys in this book. Make sure to get on the email list so that you can be the first to know when it drops. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Clive Kinross. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Clive, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Good to be here with you. So I was checking out Propel before this and uh, super interesting business and market that you're serving. Why don't you just give us a kind of high level on what it is that you do as a company, how you got started, and we'll go from there. Cool. Cool. So Propel is a fintech company. We provide access to credit to underbanked and underserved consumers across the United States and Canada. Um, These are consumers who have less than stellar credit profiles cannot access credit from a mainstream bank or credit union. Um, There's about arguably 100 million plus such consumers in Canada and the United States combined. If anything, it's a growing population, particularly in these times, and uh, they can't get access to credit from uh, a mainstream bank or credit union. In addition, most of them need access to credit given that uh, they don't have four or $500 saved in the case of an emergency expense. And uh, prior to us coming along, these consumers had very little options should they need a cash advance and they'd need to go, say, to a payday loan store or a tribal lender or a pawn shop or something along those lines to access the funds. And as a result of that, there'd be two characteristics of what they'd be getting. Number one, lower funds than they need. And number two, the rates that they would pay would be exorbitant but all that was otherwise available to them. So from our perspective, we are disrupting that segment of the market uh, by providing these consumers with way better products than were otherwise available to them. And by better products, I mean better rates, as well as higher loan amounts. And we're doing it at a time where banks and credit unions, if anything, are pulling back or tightening their underwriting even more. So our addressable market seems to be expanding by the day as more and more consumers need access uh, to our type of credits. We do it all through our proprietary technology platform, all built in-house on top of um, a big AI infrastructure. And we started the business about 12 years ago, second business I founded. And um, we took the company public on the TSX a couple of years ago. Uh, Really, really pleased with uh, how the business has unfolded not only since our inception, but maybe more specifically since the IPO. John, to put that in perspective, our revenues in 2021, the year we took it public, 
were about 130 million US dollars with net profits of about $7 million. This year, two years later, we're on track to do revenues. Um, the guidance we've provided is 315 to 345 million US dollars with almost a 4X of profits from the 7 million two years ago with profits this year or the guidance that we've provided to the street somewhere between 26 and 30 million US dollars in their profits. So that's where the business, that's where the business is today and couldn't be any more pleased, frankly. And and sorry, how long ago did you go public at that 130 million revenue number? Two years ago, almost to the day. It was October, October 2021. And all of that growth that I just mentioned to you has happened organically. This year we found actually growing Canada. As rated by uh, as rated by report on business by Global Mail, when you further segment that down to companies that have in excess of a quarter of a billion dollars in revenue, we're in the top eight fastest growing companies in Canada. And if you further segment that to companies that have done that organically, I think we're in the top three or four. And uh, in addition to that, in the recent Deloitte uh, fastest growing tech companies in North America, so Canada and the U.S. We made their top 500 list. And again, we're one of only a handful of companies that have made that list that have revenues in excess of a quarter of a billion dollars, just because it's harder to keep up those types of growth rates, as you can imagine, as the company. Yeah. And and just to be clear, 130 million to 315 million with profits of 7 million up to 26 million. And I'm going on the on the lower end of your, of your guidance here. Sure. Those numbers are staggering because you hear about companies with this kind of mega growth trajectory, but they're burning cash. I like to say they're renting market share because the minute they they turn profitable, they're going to lose it all. You guys are doing this in a pretty remarkable way. So I've got so many questions, Clive, about what what you just mentioned. So let's just go back for a second here. Can you talk a little bit about what the market is? Because I think most people here payday loan and maybe a certain image comes to their mind. And I'd love to just understand what the market breakout is and what makes you guys different than maybe other players on the market. So in the, in the financial services industry, it's very, very difficult to innovate from a product standpoint. You know, if a company comes up with a better financial product than us, they'll take market share. And as they take market share, we'll look at their product and we'll, we'll copy them and hopefully do it better. We got into the business um, 12 years ago. We were relatively late entry into the market. And um, I saw a huge shift from brick and mortar to online. And I thought I wanted to ride that wave. So even though we were relatively late to the market, there were really quite a few players at the time. And there was regulatory uncertainty, which I thought would get straightened out and that would serve us well, being that we always had a vision of being obviously a highly compliant company, as well as building a best-in-class tech infrastructure. So ultimately, we could build um, a global industry leader. So all of that was part of the initial formation. And at the same time, with the advent of technology and artificial intelligence and those types of things, I knew there would be an opportunity to innovate from a product standpoint, and perhaps maybe even more accurately, I knew there'd be an opportunity of running a better business than everybody else, a profitable business, and in so doing, be able to generate or create better products for consumers. Buy better products, I mean products that have lower interest rates, higher loan amounts, not only than was available at the time, but as we constantly continue to evolve the business, generate profits, we can put more and more of those profits into creating better products for consumers. So 
from a market standpoint today, we offer all of our loans online. A lot of our competitors either do it through brick and mortar, some, some do it online. Because of our best-in-class operating system as well as management systems, we're able to create best products. Our APRs are, from a risk-adjusted basis, best-in-class from a consumer standpoint. I know I'm being a little bit repetitive over here, but our product also in terms of the low demands are higher than otherwise available. And because of those two dynamics, we're taking more and more market share relative to the, relative to the competition. But in addition to that, customers enter our platform with a certain credit profile. What we do is as they make a we report their payment history to the bureaus um, across the US and Canada. In so doing, their credit profiles improve. And what we do as well is we work with our customers to graduate them to better products over time as they approve their, as they prove their ability to pay. So customers are constantly being graduated to products where they get higher loan amounts and even lower APRs. And we do that for two reasons. First of all, um, it's core to our mission um, of working with these customers for a better financial future. And that evolutionary process works stair-step with that. And second of all, if we don't do it as their credit profiles improve, they'll access a different lender who's at a different point in the cycle than we are and we'll lose some of our best customers. So to a degree, self-serving as well. Yeah. And how did you... I mean, I'm trying. I'm looking at your background here. How did this all come to be? I mean, wh why did you even start this business? And what gave you the insight to, to, to get into it? Yeah. So it's the second business I founded. The first business that I founded was also an industry leader, a company called OpenLane. It's still operational today. Um, OpenLane was in the automotive industry, more specifically the used car industry. Um, where we built a business that's, that transformed the way used cars are bought and sold at a business level um, across North America. Used cars are one of the biggest industries in the world. Prior to the advent of the internet, most used cars would transact at a wholesale level through brick-and-mortar auto auctions, which was an entirely cumbersome process, both for the buyers and sellers of used cars. Expensive, cumbersome, and when the internet came along, I thought, here's a better way to transact at a wholesale level with used cars, where the value proposition, both on the buy side, that's car dealers who are looking for their stock in trade, as well as the sell side, big institutions who have huge portfolios of used cars to sell, can transact in a much more efficient manner. Our sellers were the likes of Ford Motor Credit, Chrysler Financial, GMAC, American Honda Finance, Chase Bank, US Bank, GE, Enterprise, Avis, budget, you name it, to make the better mechanism for them to sell their cars, save a bunch of money prior to brick and mortar auto auction, and make it easy for dealers to purchase their stock in trade just by clicking a mouse. The value proposition that I've articulated to the extent that you and your audience do understand it, I know I'm going quite quickly over here, was really, really meaningful. But to change the way human beings conduct business was an exceptionally challenging thing to do. They've got long established relationships and to break through those relationships, either, even with a business model that makes tons and tons of sense was a very, very challenging endeavor. With that said, built that business up to around 600 people. We were taking it public on the NASDAQ back in 2008. We missed our window over there and uh, ultimately we had to restructure the company in the global financial meltdown of 2008. 
and landed up selling that business to Core Holdings for just over a quarter of a billion dollars. I remember. Business- when, so just just to be clear, 2009, that was around the time, what weren't all the automotive companies being bailed out? They were almost going out of business. Did that affect you big time? Big time. Big time. You know, the, the lion's share of that business, the lion's share of the volume that we got was in the form of lease returns. And what happened to the auto industry uh, back in 08 is oil prices spiked through the roof. Um, and as a result of that, the value of used cars, particularly the big gas guzzlers, um, really, really depreciated or the value of them went down by, by a lot. And lots of the portfolios of vehicles that we got from like Triumph, like GMAC, Ford, et cetera, comprised a lot of those bigger, bigger vehicles. And there was a huge disconnect between what the finance company wanted for the vehicle and what dealers were prepared to pay. Um, so as a result of that, all of a sudden, we started transacting way fewer cars. We got paid a fee for every car that sold. So that impacted us negatively. And at the same time, new car sales in North America went from about 20 million new car sales a year to about 10 million over that period. Our business model, because the majority of cars we were getting were lease returns, we did a look forward three or four years from 2008, 2009, and the number of lease returns would be declining as a result of new car sales during that period of time. So to a large degree, even though we we're building the business through other niches like repossessions, sale of daily rental cars, dealer to dealer and so on, our growth story went by the wayside and the opportunity to take the company public obviously um, obviously, uh, was no longer a possibility. In, in 08, the valuation that we were provided by bankers was around a billion dollars. And when we sold it a couple of years later, it was for $260 million. Still a good exit and a company that today um, is still a Fortune 500 company. And it's being run, uh, Car Holdings is being run by Peter Kelly. Peter was my CFO during that period. And uh, the majority, the number one player today and the number one, two player today in transacting used cars is either Mannheim Auto Auction, which is owned by the Cox Sisters, big private company, or Open Lane, which is uh, the operating company under the car brand. So really, really proud of what we've built and that it's such a relevant company in such a huge industry today. But what I will tell you, John, is that it was an extremely, extremely challenging business to build and one that I would only be stupid enough to do and naive enough to do if I started it in my 20s, which is what I did. By the time that was over, I recognized that I had some skills as an old prop in there. Well, don't wait one second. Pause there because I want to get into Propel in a second. But just just for the listener here, just to recap, something you said there was really interesting, which was the idea that even if a business and an offering makes total logical sense, it's very hard to break people's habits. It's very hard to get somebody to stop doing what they're doing and and stop doing what their parents did and what they were taught as kids. Like, oh, here, you know, you do you have A and then you do B. And you're trying to get some get them to do something different. That makes a lot of sense. But just the inertia of doing that. And then so that was at the beginning of your journey at Open Lane. And then at the end, you had to deal with the financial crisis. So it sounds to me like over this 10 years, you took a few beatings, Clive. Like this, this was this was a really school of hard knocks kind of thing. This is this is one of those businesses, John, that didn't just come out of the gates and work. A marketing used cars um, at scale on the internet makes all the sense in the world. But building at one building block at a time and getting to that point is one of the most painful experiences of my life. I've tested every single aspect of my tenacity, perseverance, drive, 
stick to itness and so on. And if you were to say to me, try articulate a couple of the stories so that people can understand some of the challenges, I could tell you we didn't just start the business. I went up to a whole bunch of dealers all over the place, interviewed them, told them what I was thinking of doing, and said, at the end of the day, if we start the business, will you come and buy cars from us? They all said, we hate the brick and mortar auto auctions. We love the idea of just clicking a button and staying in the dealership and purchasing a car like that. So yes, we will do it. I went to big institutional sellers of vehicles and asked them the same thing. If we start this business, will you provide us with vehicles? And they also said every time we sell a car for the brick and mortar auto auction, the ultimate selling cost between transporting the car to auction, the depreciation on the vehicle because it needs to sit there for 30 days, the cleanup to get it ready for auction, so on and so forth, cost them about $1,000, so it makes all the sense in the world. We built the technology platform, and then we went to these dealers and said, come do business with us, as well as the sellers, and none of them were there. And I went to them and I said to them, but you told me if we do this, you'll come and you'll, you'll do business with us. Why are you not there? And the dealers would say, oh, we've been buying cars through Luigi for the last 15 years. I know his son. He knows my son. We have a beer together. We have a coffee together. We've got a relationship. I really don't need you guys. And when I would go to the sellers of vehicles, you know, invariably, these were folks who worked at um, big captive finance companies, not particularly risk averse. They got paid a reasonable salary every year, but not a huge amount of, not a huge amount every year. And as a result of that, they kind of liked the fact that the big brick and mortar auto auctions would take them on fishing trips, would take them out to delicious steak dinners, would treat them like the unbelievable VIPs that they, they considered themselves to be. And here we were just with a value proposition to the ultimate company, which would say before the motor credit or price and financial. From their personal perspective, they said this could impact the fun and enjoyment of my job. And at the end of the day, if I take a risk and I do this with open lane um, and it doesn't work, I could lose my job. And if it does work, well, I won't necessarily get a promotion. I may get a pat on the back. And those are the types of dynamics that we needed to work through in changing behavior of both the buyers and sellers of those vehicles. At the end of the day, what we were doing in hindsight was creating a solution that was materially better than what was otherwise taking place. I would say in the order of magnitude of five to 10 times better than brick and mortar auto auction. And if you're going to change an industry, what you need to do doesn't need to be 20% better than what's currently taking place. In my experience, it needs to be five to 10 times better. And then you still need to be patient for people to change their behavior. The automotive industry, happens to be one of those industries where the participants are very, very slow to change. So that's what took us even longer, putting some of the competitive dynamics at the time. I would say if you're launching a product in the technology industry or even the finance industry, for example, the adoption rate tends to be faster. But one of the key learnings is that if you're gonna, gonna transform an industry, what you do needs to be many, many, many times better than the existing process if you want to get tracked. That's, that's, so yeah. that's such golden advice. I'll give you one tidbit from, from my world. So I come from the world of advertising and marketing. And I was having a conversation with a newspaper executive about five years ago. So newspapers obviously have been in decline, the, the paper at least, right. not, not the company. Right. You, know, the, you can have a website, but it's hard to have a paper. And what this news executive said to me was, we have all these client segments 
car dealerships and local businesses and, and whatnot who have been advertising in newspapers for decades, literally generations. And they will continue to do so until they die off or something exceptional happens. But even in the age of Google and Facebook and clearly better options than putting an ad in a newspaper or putting as much budget in a newspaper, people were still buying ads in newspapers rather than putting their money somewhere else that worked a lot better. And it was because of inertia. And it was because, hey, Doug, I've been dealing with Doug since 1986 and he's a good guy and I play golf with his you know, son. And so it really is, is similar to what you said. When you're in an industry that has deep, profound relationships, it's much more about emotion and relationship than it is about logic. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we spent a bunch of time we ultimately formed, if you if you will, a, a consulting arm, and we went into these companies and we started breaking down their portfolios and showing them how much money they could be saving if they were using it from using it with us, rather than the brick and mortar auto auction. And ultimately, we needed to appeal to the higher ups in the organisation, not just with the remarketing manager who was conflicted with all of the stuff, John, that you and I have just mentioned. But we did our best to speak at conferences to get published in trade publications so that ultimately it would get the attention, um, let's say, of the CEO of, of, of Ford Motor Credit or the CEO of Chase Bank, for example, so he could push down to his remarketing department. This new methodology makes all the sense in the world to me. Why are we not using it? Right. And rest assured, these are folks who are selling multi-billion dollar used car portfolios. So to the extent that we could save them 5 or 10%, on the ultimate net setting price of those vehicles, the dollars were really, really meaningful. But it yeah. took a while before we penetrated. So after Open Lane, after that experience, you then decide, I'm going to do this again, and you get into Propel. So what was the inception of Propel Holdings? So the one, the one big learning was I'm not going to transform any more industries. It's much too difficult. And again, that's better served by folks in their 20s who don't necessarily know what they were getting themselves into which is what I was, this go around, I knew what I was getting myself into. And I said, rather than change an industry, what I want to do this, this time around is I want to look for an industry that's very, very large, that's underserved, and where the business model is somewhat proven. And back in 2011, when we were getting started, there were certainly online lenders who were serving this market um, in a relatively unsophisticated way at the time, but were having some success now, part of the reason they were having success is at the time, internet lending from a regulatory perspective was ahead of where the regulations were. There were lots of folks that were that were lending when they found kind of loopholes in the regulatory law. And from my perspective, I figured that would be cleansed um, over time, which is exactly what has happened on the one hand. But on the other hand, I figured if we come at it in a sophisticated way, clearly customers like this, clearly the model's working, even though we were late to the party. If we could build a business and operate five or ten percent better than the competition, we could build an industry leader. Now we've endeavored to operate at a level that's much better than five or ten percent better than the competition. And I think we're proving that out, which is why we're growing the way we are. But that was the initial thesis. Um, and with uh, with the help of an absolutely world class outstanding group of co-founders and now executive team and rest of the company will continue continuing to drive that growth and expansion, both at the top line and maybe even more importantly at the bottom. 
quick break so I can tell you about DemandScope. DemandScope is a performance marketing agency that helps you acquire new customers, keep them hooked, and scale profitably. Google ads, Instagram ads, TikTok ads, landing pages, email, and more. There are so many ways to get customers today, but if you're not doing it right, you'll end up blowing a whole bunch of money. And that's why I launched DemandScope. We're here to make sure you're doing it right. Get more customers today and scale effectively. Learn more at demandscope.co. That's demandscope.co. And did you raise capital? Is this, was this a VC-backed company or did you have capital to put into it at the beginning? So my first business was funded, first of all, by my mentor, Michael Stein. And Mike's the chairman of the board and partner again in the, the Propel business. And Mike and I forged a loose relationship early on in the open lane days whereby he liked me and he liked my entrepreneurial inclination. He saw something in me. He had just taken Cap Reed public on the TSX. He was a founding chairman and CEO of that company. There was all the growth in the internet. And him and I forged a loose relationship whereby he said he would back me to start a business. I took an office at his holding company, which ultimately translated into the, into the start of open lane. He funded uh, the early stages of that business. And what we then did at some point in that evolution is we merged with a competitor and brought on a lot of VC money into that business from the likes of Meritech Capital, um, August Capital, and others. Some of the big, big names in Silicon Valley. When I started to uh, tell holdings, based on those learnings, so everyone being in the institution, I'd rather keep control for as long as I could. And didn't do that by bringing on family and friends as initial investors, including Mike, who, again, has been a partner in this business. So when we started Propel, we raised $4 million from family and friends. That was relatively easy for me to do on the back of the success of OpenLane. We took that business from a loan perspective to be cash flow positive in about 2013 at which point we raised dead capital to fund the growth of the business. Business was profitable in 2015, and um, from 2015 and onwards, we built the business through a combination, dead capital, as well as profits that the business was generating. So the only equity we ever raised was that initial $4 million all the way up until 2021. So $4 million of capital at the very beginning. And then obviously the loans that you give out come from other places. You're not, you're not loaning out the $4 million, I assume. Or, or were you in the early days? No, we were. We were. Oh. Yeah. That formed part of that formed the combination of the startup costs as well as the initial, uh, the initial equity to grow the loan book. Once, the, once we proved that those loans, that we knew how to run a profitable loan book on a per loan basis, even though the business wasn't yet profitable, we showed that the loans themselves were profitable. We were then able to attract debt capital in 2013 to grow our loan. By 2015, not only were we profitable on a per loan basis, but we were profitable with the overall business as well. So we used those profits to grow our equity base um, and continued to attract new debt capital to fund the growth in the loan. 
So you use the four million initially to fund both operations and the the loan itself. Effectively, your product was the money, and then yes. at a certain point, I'd imagine your goal in the early days is to get as big of a line of credit or somebody else's money to loan out. That that's essentially how the, how this kind of business works. I remember talking to the executives years ago from Clearco, and they were talking about how essentially what they needed was the biggest amount of money they could get to loan out, but ideally that was not the equity of the business that was debt in the business is that is that kind of how it works you got it yeah you absolutely got it and at the end of the day like any finance company bank lender or any anybody else the way they're making money is on the spread between what they're paying on the debt that they have and what they're earning um, from interest and fees uh, when they when they loan the funds out so you know that's what we did and from my perspective i'm a chartered accountant chartered accountant even though i'm a very aggressive business builder I'm also very prudent and very frugal and always have an eye on profitability. Um, I don't believe in these models that are started with, uh, with an eye on growth, with an eye on profitability. So we've had that perspective from day one. And uh, starting with a relatively low equity base meant we needed to be really thoughtful and really frugal about how we spent and allocated funds. And that is very much in our DNA today, now that we're a much bigger company, not only in terms of our how I think and my founding team thinks, but how the rest of the company thinks as well. So starting off being frugal with an eye on profitability is key in terms of establishing that type of a culture, enduring culture throughout the organization. Moving from a company that doesn't have a concern about profitability to all of a sudden one that at some point by necessity has to, and there's a lot of companies that are in that position today, is a very, very difficult cultural transition to I mean, it's, a, it's it's a muscle that you you, you kind of have to have it in your culture or it's not there. And yeah, I was going to say you were you were you were Arthur Anderson, so you were doing this kind of stuff. You're an accountant by trade. Can I just ask? So what I'm curious about is in the early days, how did you get those first few customers or the first hundred customers to take your money? How did you find them? How did you trust them? What were you doing early on, or did you already know how that world worked, or, or were you learning along the way? So, so a couple of things, obviously learning along the way. We learn a lot, you know, we learn a lot along the way. But the one thing I learned along the way was that do a lot of homework before we launch. Because you could do as much homework as you like. And when you start the business, you're going to learn a bunch anyway. So you may as well spend longer up front doing your homework so that when you launch and when things don't go according to plan, you know or you have a better idea where to look because you've done all of that upfront homework which doesn't cost that much money. It costs a lot in terms of stress, and it costs a lot in terms of wanting to get started already. But I, re- I learned the benefits of doing lots of homework in advance. And some of that homework was who the right po- people to partner with in order to get applications for our system, who are the lead providers that we could work with, who are the consolidators that are attracting these customers who are looking for the loans, what are the other interesting partnerships we can forge to attract that type of traffic. So you know, before we got started, we had our handful of partners that we chose to work with. We integrated them into our system in the early days, and that's where we got the traffic. In other words, it wasn't generated internally by us. We didn't have a brand of the expertise at the time of doing that. Instead, what we did is we, we worked with companies who attracted, who attracted the loan applications and they sent those loan applications to us. And obviously, that's how we built the business. We didn't have a brand nor reputation on day one. 
which also made it a little bit more challenging. And like any uh, startup, we, we bent over backwards. We still do, but you do even more so in those early days with your first few customers. And slowly but surely, we built, we built, we built the business, built the volume, uh, built the brand all the way to. And so, how did the company go from those early days to going public? Were you always, did you always have your sights on going public? And what was that journey like? Always had our sights on building big terminal value in the business. You know, we're in a huge business, a huge industry, and uh, believe that we could build a multi billion dollar business here and always had that perspective, particularly when I got into this business and learned more and more just how much white space there is. And then if we come experts at the lending process, marketing and underwriting on top of our prior to world-class technology platform, there's lots and lots and lots we could do with it. I didn't necessarily know that we'd be tapping the, the, the public markets to raise more capital, but I knew that at some point we would need more capital. And what happened in 2021 is we started getting inbound calls from investors. It was a relatively frothy market from an equity standpoint. And uh, I thought now could be a good time to bring on additional capital. First of all, we saw a couple of new and exciting initiatives that we thought we needed more capital to deploy. And second of all, the inbound calls were very tempting as well. So based on a host of inbound calls, we started working um, with a group called the Raptor Group, a very prolific fintech investor. They called us in the early part of 2021 and said they wanted to do a fairly chunky uh, capital injection into the business in the form of a private round. And we really got to know those guys and like those guys. And um, at the same time, started thinking about whether it made more sense to tap the public markets rather than, rather than private markets. What started becoming apparent to me is the public window for taking companies like ours public was open. And um, the, the public markets would provide us a slightly higher value than we could get with the private side. But in addition to that, I figured our business may need additional capital on a go-forward basis, as well as having the public company stock to do acquisitions and incent employees and so on. So I figured taking the company public made more sense of being a private round. So what I did is I ratcheted back to back and they wrote a check for 15 million in the beginning of 2021, which from my perspective secured one of the number one blue chip fintech investors in the US today. And number two, in the event that the RPO, which I knew was going to take place later on in the year, was unsuccessful because, you know, markets change. And at least we had a backup plan and deep pocketed investors. So that was the plan. Fortunately, uh, we, we had a very successful RPO. It was three times oversubscribed in the back of 2021, made by a catapult, the social was need. And uh, we said that we're going to need those funds First of all, to open up in Canada, to launch a product in Canada, to take startup capital, in addition to, to that, to grow in the loan book, and finally to launch additional products to consumers with um, lower, with better credit profiles than our current consumers have. All of those initiatives, not only have we launched since going public, but we also gave investors some guidance as to what we thought the revenues, profits were. And I can tell you, we're one of um, the only, if not the only company out of that 2021 vintage who has exceeded expectations, exceeded or met expectations on all of those fronts. And if you ever said to me, John, how do I know that? I know that because institutional investors tell us that all the time. Hmm. 
And what's it like running a public company? I mean, you've done it before, obviously, at uh, at the last company at OpenLane. It was, I'm guessing, a much more tumultuous experience because you, you did it in, in a pretty painful way. But now it's been a couple of years. Any kind of big changes on a day-to-day basis when, as you're operating this business? A lot. A lot, a lot of changes. Look... You've got to be ready to go public. You know, I mean, I say you've got to be ready to go public. I don't mean it from an emotional perspective. I mean it from a structural perspective. You need management systems in place. You need a management team in place. And you need to know as a CEO, and mainly as a CEO and CFO, and maybe general counsel as well, that there's going to be a lot of new functions that you're going to have to perform as a public company that we didn't as a private company. I'm a really, really hands-on operator, as is my CFO, general counsel, and others. So all of a sudden, to give up 50% of our operating time to run one of all the aspects of running the public company, attracting investors, and so on, was a really, really big endeavor. From my perspective, I had the team and was comfortable that I could take a step back from the operations of the business in order to do that. I would say um, as big a lift as it was for me, probably even a bigger lift for our CFO, who already, uh, who already had a very, very big job. Now being the CFO of a public company is also a big job. And uh, I would say for the first quarter or two, we were hitting our stride and getting into a new team. We're now, I think, you know, we've had eight or nine reporting quarters. Things are getting better each and every quarter. We've got our cadence, we've got our systems, we know how everything works. But it's a different skill set going out and marketing to investors and speaking to investors and telling the story relative to running the business. I'm learning as I go. I think I'm doing a better job all the time um, in appealing to investors and speaking to investors. And uh, for me, I love new journeys and I love the road less traveled. So the fact that I've got this new challenge at this stage of my life will be something that I'm relishing in and uh, appreciating each and every day. And can you give our listeners a, b- a bit of a masterclass here? So I'm I'm still fixated on these numbers. At the beginning, you said 130 million revenue, 7 million profit, 315 million is guidance with 26 million profit. How are you growing at this pace profitably? I mean, is this just, there's a couple options. Either it's a business that just has insane profits, so you've got a lot of room there, or you're running with incredible efficiency, or something else is happening behind the scenes here. How about, how about a combination of all of those? <laughs> first, of all, first of all, we are operating with incredible efficiency. I mentioned to you earlier about the frugal nature of the business uh, and how we, uh, how we allocate treasury and how we allocate cash across the business. It's very, very, very thoughtful and it's very disciplined. Believe it or not, we are exceptionally prudent with our bank partners on the risk side and on the underwriting side and as prudent and as thoughtful as we are on the underwriting risk side, we're, as a, we're probably as aggressive, on the other hand, on building new programs and partnerships and initiatives. So, you know, our growth is coming from a combination of two things. Number one, building a better and better and better reputation, more and more data, utilizing our AI to find more consumers without taking on additional risk. That's just what's going on with our core business and being a public company and having more credibility has allowed us to attract new and better partners, which has helped fuel that growth. I've probably underestimated the credibility we would get as a public company 
the credibility that we would get that our financials would all of a sudden become available to partners and industry participants. And I think at our part that was one business would be included in business tenders that, that, that the otherwise would put. So that's number one. Number two is my founding team has been with me since the get-go. It's over 12 years now. Our executive team has been together for a minimum of eight years. And there's obviously an exception to that. We hired uh, from uh, an external executive earlier this year, and, and it's possible to do more external hiring on a go-forward basis. So I'm not wedded to the notion that our team has been together for eight years. That'd be so if it's the right person to bring them on from the outside. But my point of speaking about the longevity of our team is they know the business really. They know how to get things done internally. More than that, they know the industry participants for So on the back of the credibility and the relationships that we have, we're able to now bring on more and more and more new initiatives. So the growth that you've seen isn't only from the organic um, legacy products and services that we have, but in addition to that, we're bringing on new products and services over time that aren't only fueling our growth kind of from 2021 to 2023, but more exciting than that, they will fuel our continued growth um, for many, many years. Even if we even if we don't, John, bring on any new relationships or partnerships or products, we will grow at an exponential rate for the next several years. And I'm entirely confident that we will continue to bring on new kind of relationships and partnerships and our business development pipeline, frankly, has never been as full as it is today. So all of that. So as you're looking out two, three, five, ten years, you're targeting $315 million for your next report or for your next year. What do you think has to change or if something needs to change for this to get to a billion dollar company? I mean, do you have to fundamentally change to go to a billion or two billion? Or is it really just more of the same? Yeah, I think it's I think it's more of the same. You keep mentioning 315 and 26, and I think you're at the low end of the gardens over there. So I just want to I just want to make the point that kind of that's the low end of the gardens. I'm happy to happy to be kind of a little bit more prudent in the discussion, but 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 nonetheless, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point that out. Look, we've got a huge amount of customers who are part of our business today. We understand uh, the customer lifecycle incredibly well. And we understand the economics of our existing loan book. In addition to that, we understand kind of where to grow and how to grow and bring on new customers and go forward basis with a business that's continuing to transition from brick and mortar to online. So if you just put those, those dynamics together and you think about the compounding nature of our business without any new programs, if we just keep our heads down, keep operating the way that we are, there's very, very little doubt in my mind that we will grow. And I'm not talking about from a valuation perspective. That's for investors to decide. Talking more from a revenue and profitability perspective, we will grow into a company that's doing uh, many billions of dollars in revenue and uh, continue to grow our profit margins, which today, for every 100, 100 million or so that we add to the top line, we add off the tax, off the interest, off the everything, anywhere from call it 13 to 15%. And if anything, those margins are increasing as the business extent. In addition to that, we're only operational in Canada and the US today. And I'm just touching this market. There's so much more market share in Canada and the US alone. But if you think about it, two of the wealthiest countries in the world have such a big opportunity in them. This has to be a global business. There's got to be opportunity to offer these types of products everywhere. And absolutely, there are. 
We have aspirations of being a global industry leader, not only a North American industry leader. And we will do that over the medium to long term through a combination of starting new operations in other jurisdictions, as well as growth through acquisition. This happens to be a challenging market to grow through acquisition, partially because I believe our valuation is depressed relative to what it otherwise could or should be. And second of all, because the private companies that we would otherwise like to purchase have valuation expectations that are different to what public company multiples currently trade. But over time, all of that stuff gets sorted. So just, all, of which, all of which is to say, we will grow this into a multi-billion dollar business. And the reason I'm here working so hard each and every day is it's very, very rare to be the leader of a company that's got this kind of this kind of incredible opportunity ahead of us. I can see that, and the numbers don't lie. I'm just, I'm just reading your your uh, Q3 report, and uh, it's pretty incredible. It, it occurs to me as you're talking that the tailwinds, the negative tailwinds that kind of hurt you back in 2008, it's actually the opposite now. You're dealing with some tailwinds that are fairly positive for your business because of the economic environment, interest rates, whatever. That people, that your service is actually on the upswing right now. So you know, you got beat up last time, but you're got you're you're on the better end of the bargain this time. These tailwinds and headwinds, John, you know, just being candid, you know, we're, we're in many respects uh, in a very good scenario now um, in the sense that, you know, both economies are operating at near full employment. Inflation seems to be being reined in. And if you take those two, those two variables, they're very, very good. And that creates, certainly creates a tailwind. The headwind right now is two things. First of all, there is some uncertainty. And I don't know if those dynamics will continue to be in place, even though we sit here, we sit here kind of in the middle of Q4 and couldn't be any pleased with what we're seeing in the broader market. But who knows what the long term has in store. They hit, with that said, even if there is a downturn in the economy, our segment of the market performs exceptionally well. And you can go back 30, 40, 50 years and see that. And if we want, we could speak about why that is. But for the time being, that is the case. But one of the major headwinds right now is higher interest rates. And um, we've got about a quarter of a billion dollars in debt um, on our balance sheets. We're paying give or take 5% more on that debt than we were paying only 18 months ago. So that's a drag on our pre-tax earnings, 5% of 250 million of about $12.5 million. So as impressive as our numbers have been, had rates just remained the same, and we'd be making $12.5 million more uh, pre-tax than we otherwise are making. But I believe that's a tailwind as well, because I think interest rates have peaked, and I think rates are only going to start to come down. So if anything, there could be additional margin expansion for our business as rates start to come down, but it's certainly been something to contend with over the last 18 months or so. Well, as you said, you're in a great place when rates can rise as much as they have and you're still finding room to make a profit and issue dividends. I mean, kudos to you. This is a, a pretty enviable position to be in. Thank you. Uh, Clive Kinross, thank you so much. This is an awesome conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, John. I really enjoyed it as well. Thanks for the energy and the curiosity and, and thanks for inviting. Thanks for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple or Spotify. Let's other folks know that you love the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right.